At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? You know, this morning, I don't know about you guys, every preacher did this across Michigan. I woke up probably 12 times last night to make sure I didn't oversleep. I was afraid of oversleeping. I don't know why I don't remember that the cell phone does the heavy lifting. It adjusts the time for me. Uh, But sometimes we've all had that dream before that we missed an appointment, that we were late for something important, that we weren't ready. And really that uh, speaks perfectly to what we've been studying in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. You can open your Bibles to chapter 25 of Matthew with me. We've been in what's called the Olivet Discourse. Now it's called the Olivet Discourse because this is Jesus's fifth and final teaching recorded in the Gospel of Matthew between him and his disciples. Now it's an important discourse, it's an important time of teaching and discussion because Jesus is talking about nothing less than the end of all things things in this age. He is talking about the sign of his coming, his return. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem as well. How many are wanting to be informed about end times? How many want to make sure you are aware of what is on the horizon? How many want to be ready? How many want to be ready? I pray that you want to be ready. You know, thinking about last week's text caused me to remember my time as a financial advisor before I became a pastor. I was working for a major investment bank as a financial advisor. And part of my job, the bulk of my job, was to help my clients to get ready for future events. We would sit down and we would talk about what's on the horizon. What are the long-term goals that you want to accomplish? For some, it was sending a kid off to college or multiple kids off to college. For others, it was retirement. I want to make sure that I'm ready to retire. Uh, For others, it was uh, thinking about the end of life and transferring the wealth that they had accumulated over the years to the next generation. Once those goals were established, the next step in the process was to make sure that there was a plan in place so that those goals can be achieved. How many by the show of hands have goals for the future? How many have goals for the future? Here's the question is, are you ready? Have you properly prepared for those goals? If not, all they are are wishes that will ultimately end in disappointment, frustration, or maybe even worse, disaster if you're not ready. But maybe even more important than the question of are you ready for your natural goals of retirement, college, and passing your wealth on is are you ready for the end of all things? Are are you ready for the return of Christ? This passage has uh, been interpreted in in several different ways. My interpretation, a dominant interpretation of our church here is that Jesus, as we go into Matthew 25, is talking particularly about the rapture, which is something we believe. That Christ is going to come back and he's going to call up the church, those who will put their faith and trust in him, and we will meet him in the air and so shall we be with him forever. We're gonna read about that a little bit more as we go on in this service. But the rapture inaugurates this season of Jacob's distress, the great tribulation, a season of of great uh, suffering that, that is avoided by God's people if we put our faith and trust in him. 
Why does Jesus teach us about these things? Why, why does he tell us about these end times, these times that are so apocalyptic and so full of suffering and so full of these uh, uh, magnificent and major events? It's because he wants us to be ready. But he also tells us about these future things so they might shape the way we live today. How many know that a goal for the future really motivates us to invest and make changes today? You know, uh, when my wife and I got married, we were 20, we were young. Now that I'm raising uh, children and teenagers, I think that was crazy. I don't know how my parents let us get away with that, but it worked out. Um, but I think about getting married, and I, and I finished my undergrad degree, and, and she was uh, towards the, the end of hers. Since we've been married, I've seen her uh, finish a couple degrees, and I was thinking about uh, the sacrifices that, that she made along the way. And those of you who have been in college and going towards a degree, you know what I'm talking about, uh, those long hours writing paper when coffee is your best friend and you're skipping weekend activities. Why? Because you have a goal that you want to achieve in the future. You want to make sure you're ready for graduation in her case. Well, in the same way, Christ tells us these things that are on the horizon because he wants us to prepare today to make investment and sacrifice, to not go the way of the world, to skip out on the sin of this culture, to invest our time into worship and the word and to seeking him. Why? Because he wants us to be ready. He doesn't want us to be deceived. And so he gives us verses 1 through 13 of, of Matthew 25 to show us a contrast between true discipleship and false discipleship. Look at verses 1 uh, through 13 with me. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, that's a key word, underline it or, or remember it, we'll come back to it. They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there, was no, there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus is very clear. You know, I was raised by a teacher. My dad taught for 27 years. And one of the things that my dad used to teach me is the importance of final words. A master teacher understands that the final words that they give to a class is parting wisdom, lessons that are supposed to be remembered. It is almost as if the statement is, if you don't remember anything else, remember these words, barnish them in your brain and brand them on your heart so you don't forget. What his final words, make sure that you're ready. But notice the, the attitude that he wants it to produce within us. So often, the opposite of the attitude that it does produce in the church when we study in times. 
This should produce humility within us, a humility that says, am I really ready? But if uh, not for that reason, at least for the reason or for the fact that he says, no one knows the hour. He didn't expect for us to grow in pride, to try to uh, calculate with such precision and finitude that we think we know better than everyone else knows as it pertains to the end times. This should be a place where we are most gracious, but we are most humbled as well as we say, Lord, only you can make me ready for your return. This uh, chapter has uh, various scenes in it, this particular parable. Uh, we'll walk through these scenes and you can divide up the scenes the way that you want, but the first scene starts very interestingly, verses one through four. And here's the big idea of it all, is that true disciples make pr uh, provision for the distance. Jesus is warning them to not just think that his return would be uh, short-term in nature, but to prepare for the long-term. Are you prepared for the long-term? Have you settled in your heart that I am gonna seek Christ no matter how long it takes before he returns, that I am gonna worship him until my dying day or until he returns for me, whichever comes first. How many have made that decision and pledged yourself fully devoted to the Lord, amen? He goes on to say in verse number one through four, he says, then the kingdom of heaven again will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom, five of which, or five of them rather, were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them for the wise, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Now, in order to not misinterpret this, you have to know a little bit about uh, Hebrew weddings during this time. Let me just clear up some misunderstanding here. This is not a scene out of The Bachelor. This is not some handsome young man who has his pick of 10 women and we're wondering who's gonna get the rose. It's not what this is all about. This is a part of the uh, very magnificent and elaborate Hebrew wedding process. How did it work? Well, if you read the Moody Bible commentary, to kind of break it up into these divisions, and I think it is uh, accurate to historical accounts. So first, uh, if they were not already pledged to marriage by a family in an arranged format, which now that I have kids, I believe in arranged marriages, but I'll come back to that. But if that was not already there, then a young man would see a young woman wanting to marry her and would go to her father or her family and say, I would love the privilege of being able to marry your daughter. If granted, a dowry would be given. This dowry was to replace her economic contribution to the family because she would have been working, laboring with that family. So in order to financially make whole the family, the uh, husband would give a dowry. Then vows would be exchanged. This is the first step of the marriage process. They would enter into what's known as a betrayal period, which in our culture would be kind of like an engagement, but taking far more seriously, it would be considered that they were married, but they wouldn't consummate the marriage then. No, the husband would then go away to prepare a place for his bride to come and be with him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? John 14, that our, uh, our Savior has gone to, a, to prepare a place so that where he is, we might be with him also. Typically, the husband in 
this culture would uh, build an extension onto his father's house. They would be separated on average for about a year. After he was done, he would come back in a celebratory way with the whole wedding party, his groomsmen, those bridesmaids, and they would come to receive his bride, go back to his house, their new home, and they would have seven days of celebration and, and, and wedding bliss, and then they would consummate uh, the marriage. And I'll let you explain that to your children at home. But this was the process. And so these uh, virgins are more like bridesmaids. And what was your hope? To be invited to those seven days of celebration, that, that marriage feast, that wedding feast. And so you had to be uh, uh, ready. But, but notice in verse number five, the scene uh, changes. In verse number five, it says, and the bridegroom was delayed. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, there is no critique here. There is no sin here. It's no sin that they became drowsy and slept. This is just a reflection of their humanity. But the fact that it states that the bridegroom was delayed, I think is Jesus giving us some indication of the type of long-term thinking we should have about his return. They didn't know when he was going to return. No doubt they probably thought in their lifetime. Here we stand some 2,000 years later. Has he been unfaithful? No. He told us here, if there is a delay, make sure you are prepared. Settle in your heart that Christ is worth following, that he is worth waiting for. How many believe that? You know, when I was engaged to my wife, I was convinced that she was worth waiting for. 23 years into the marriage, I affirm it again. Best decision I've made outside of Christ was waiting for that awesome woman of God. Well, if I love her like that, I want you to know I love Jesus more, and I believe that he is worth waiting for. I believe that he is worth being faithful to, to turn away from this world's sin, and to give him all of my heart, because he's just that good. How many agree with me that Christ is worth serving and worth waiting for? So they made those provisions. Verse number six tells us something that should pique our interest as well. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. You know, that reminds me of 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Turn there with me if you can't keep your fingers there in Matthew. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, it says in verses 16 and 17, giving us these famed words by the apostle Paul about the rapture of the church. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of, of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That's where we get the word rapture from, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why did Paul record uh, for us that the rapture was coming, that there would be a day when Christ would rescue us from this present world? It's because he knew how evil this world would grow. That, that the more more this world uh, grew in its callousness to Christ, the more evil and carnal and the more uh, ungodly and unloving our culture became. It should not provoke within us bitterness. 
which is the typical response, but no, we were supposed to encourage one another with these words. It's supposed to look like this, that the harder it is to live as a Christian, the more we should say to one, other, one another, hang in there because his coming is sooner than it, than it once appeared. We're supposed to look at one another in the eye and say, don't give up, brother. Don't give up, sister. Keep on being faithful. Keep on serving him. It is worth it, and the payout is coming. He will crack that midnight sky and he will receive us so that we might be with him forever and ever and ever. And how many are looking forward to that day? <laughs> Going back to Matthew and the parable here, this, uh, this cry at midnight seems so abnormal. If you're going to come and receive your bride, why would you come at midnight? If you were gonna come and pick up your bride to bring her back home with you, with the wedding party, the house was now prepared, everything was all in place, the party was ready, why would you come at midnight? That's precisely the point. The, the original audience would have heard these words and thought, that's unexpected. That's a plot twist. All great stories have a plot twist. This delay is a plot twist, and this timing of his return is so unexpected. Jesus wants us to know that's the point in a time where no one is expecting for him to return. He will return, maybe even today, a day that feels normal, just like any other day. That's how his resurrection and crucifixion happened on a day that felt like any other day he stretched his arms wide and he died for us. On a day that felt like any other day he rose from the grave with all power in his hands. And on a day that will feel like any other day he will come back to receive his bride. Verse number seven goes on to say, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answer saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. I try to read that without laughing, but it is kind of funny. Hey, we didn't make preparations for us, so let us borrow some of yours. You know, I had a proverbial dad who uh, had a story about everything, right? And uh, he had a proverb for everything. And one of the things my dad used to drill home to me over and over again when I was growing up is this saying, don't let your neglect become my emergency. Anybody ever heard that before? I can hear his voice in my head. Don't let your neglect become my emergency. Dad, give me some gas money. I didn't fill up my tank. Don't let your neglect become my emergency. They didn't prepare. This is like going on a hiking trip and not taking enough water. This is like driving cross country and not filling up your tank. This is like going on a vacation and not taking enough money with you. They didn't prepare for the moment. So then in verse number 10, another very key verse, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Those outside of the door experienced judgment. Those inside of the door received uh, the invitation to the marriage feast. 
Oh, what a great uh, illusion this is to the wedding feast of the Lamb that the church will participate in when Jesus comes back to establish his messianic rule and reign. Turn with me quickly to Revelation 19, the last book in your Bible. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. And hear these words written by John the Revelator about that marriage feast. Not the parabolic one, but the real one that awaits for us. And he says here in verse number 7, of chapter 19, Revelation, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to, be, to uh, clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Going back to Matthew chapter 25, there should be, if you are starting to understand this properly, a sense of sobriety rising on the inside of you. There should be an unsettling question that is uh, gnawing at your heart. There should be this piercing sting as we read these words, am I ready? Not falsely assuming I'm ready, but truly assuming I'm ready. How do I know the difference? It's only with the word of God. Many have uh, not made provisions to wait for him. And so when he returns, they won't be found ready. How do we know that we're ready? Because we have put our faith and our trust in him. We have turned from trying to manage our own lives and turned the keys of our lives over to him, acknowledging his lordship overall, especially over our own lives. We have surrendered ourselves to him and recognized I can't save myself, can't clean myself up. This invitation is not an earned invitation. Week after week after week, preachers like myself invite people to come and give your life to Jesus. We're extending the invitation to you. It is an invitation by grace, merited only by his works and what he did on the cross. But to be ready, it must be received by faith. You have to settle in your heart, yes, I want to accept your offer of salvation. And by doing that, you confirm your name on the guest list. But yet some, week after week, or, or time after time, after hearing the invitation, have ignored it, chosen to not put your faith or trust in him. And so then verse number 11 becomes very sobering after the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Notice that he stepped out of the story and now into the end times. It's no longer uh, the, the groom being referred to, but the Lord being referred to. Verse 12, but he answers, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Does those words sound familiar to you? If you've ever read Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23, they should. Time won't permit me to go there now. Please make a note for yourself to read those later. Some of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture that many will stand before the Lord on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Hey, we hung around the church. I was on the praise team. I was even in the choir. Didn't I, didn't I usher for you? I mean, I went on Christmas and Easter. Jesus let me in. He's going to respond to some and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Are you ready, friends? 
Verse number 12, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. If Christ were to see you, would he know you? Verse 13 tells us the application. We don't have to wonder what the application of the parable is. It is given to us in verse number 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Why not tell us? It's because he wants us to live in a constant state of readiness. No, no waiting till the last minute to get prepared. No, not with Jesus. We must live ready now couple of observations, then we can go home. The first observation that is so important is that superficial discipleship will prove insufficient over time. Superficial discipleship will always prove, my friends, to be insufficient. If this parable tells us anything, it's the difference between true disciples and false disciples. Notice that we can't tell in the first few verses. We, we really can't tell who's true or who's false. They're all together all together, all in the same room, all in the same auditorium, all watching online, the same service, you would think that they were all okay. But Jesus knew that they weren't all okay. That just because you're around the things of God doesn't mean that the things of God are in you. You have to have your own relationship with the Lord. You have to put your faith in Jesus. You have to pursue him not just as a churchgoer, but as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who is committed to saying that I will do what he says to do, that his teachings will be what governs my life, that the centerpiece of my life will be the things of the Lord. Second observation is important is that delays test us. He, he purposely put in this delay. It's not a mistake, not haphazard. There's a delay here and delays test us. It is here in the waiting, in the delay that we really separate um, the wheat from the chaff. It is here in the waiting, in the delay, when there's not immediate gratification that we see what type of soil this is, the soils of the heart. It is here in the waiting, in the suffering, in the challenge that we see who really is devoted for Jesus, to Jesus. Delays do that to us, don't they? These inconvenient periods in which we're not getting immediate gratification, they, they brought their lamps. It wasn't that they didn't bring their lamps, they just didn't bring extra oil. In other words, it would have been okay for them if there was immediate payoff and immediate gratification. But what if the Christian life is back-end loaded instead of front-end loaded? What if the payoff, the greatest part of the payoff, now certainly there are benefits now, the peace of knowing him, the joy of knowing him, the pleasure of being in his presence, but there is ultimately the greatest balloon payment in history is coming as we put our trust and faith in him and he rewards us for that. How have we handled delays? You know, I kind of look at 2020 as a massive delay. How many feel that way? 2020 was a massive interruption. It was a delay in any pleasure or any gratification, but I believe it was a year that didn't so much produce anything within us as it did reveal what was in us. Our feet firmly planted in the gospel? Is our heart firmly devoted to him? Are we uh, committed and united to one another, to the body of believers? Because if we are, we will jump over hurdles to be in fellowship with him and with one another. If it means Zooming, I'll Zoom. If it means watching through cameras, I'll watch through cameras. If it means coming and wearing a mask a little bit, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I won't let any small, minor inconvenience keep me from worshiping you. 
The problem is, is that delays reveal our shallowness. And this is where I get to warn you, to warn you not to allow the systems and the messages of this world to pull your heart away from your Savior. How do we become superficial or false disciples? It is when we are in church, but more connected to the world than we are to the Savior. Pray that that does not happen to you. The final point of observation here is that preparation can't be borrowed. You can't borrow somebody else's preparation. You know, uh, I think about athletics. There are talented people who have great talent, but the difference between good and great are those who put in the work, and you can't borrow somebody else's work. You can't borrow somebody else's preparation, and in the case of this parable, you can't borrow somebody else's salvation. This is where Christian parents need to tell kids that are being raised in their home that salvation is not an inheritance in the sense that we think of natural uh, passing down of assets. You don't get it just because you were raised in my home. You don't get it just because grandma was a Christian or granddad was a Christian or mom and dad loved Jesus. No, he has to be your savior. You don't get it just because your friends love Jesus. You have to surrender your heart and life to the Lord. So the question of the text, friends, is simply this. My longing, my prayer, my burden in preaching this to you is to warn you, be ready, because when he returns, when the bridegroom comes and the trumpet uh, blasts and uh, the cry of the archangel go, goes out, that the groom is here, it's too late. You can't get ready then. And as verse number 13 says, it will come at a time when you least expect it. So don't think you'll be able to predict it. Again, no final minute conversions here. We have to decide now. There's two types of people in the room and watching me. The first type of person is the person who is not ready. Here's the good news. You can get ready now. How many thank God that those who call upon his name shall in no ways be cast out? How many praise God that if you cry out to him, Jesus be my Lord, he will not reject you? How many thank God that all of us have blemishes on our resumes, but there's no sin we've ever done on earth that's greater than what he did on Calvary? How many praise God that his grace is sufficient, that his mercy is for all? So if you don't know Jesus, today I give you this glorious altar call, maybe virtual, maybe in person, but after we're done here worshiping, if you're in this room, you run to this altar and you make sure you are ready. And if you're watching, you just type right now, connect. I want to pray with someone so that I can be ready because I don't want to be cast out into judgment when he returns. Second group that's watching right now or that's here right now are those who are ready. And praise God, but your job's not done just because you're ready. No, you are called to be his ambassadors. We are called to be his witnesses. Some of us think, well, my house is in order, so praise God, you worry about yourself. But no, as long as we have children that don't know him and friends that don't know him and neighbors and coworkers, we have to be the voice encouraging them to get ready so that when he returns, he will find us faithfully bearing witness to his goodness, his grace, and his salvation. So either get ready or help others to get ready until the day he returns or he calls you home. Amen? Let's all stand.
As we prepare to close in worship, let me pray. Father, thank you that the word of God has gone forth clearly, that Jesus has been presented as Lord and Savior, forgive, forgiver of our sins, the only means of, of mercy and grace and salvation. I pray uh, that those who need to respond would do so. I pray that we would all leave here with a burden of who should I call, who should I text, who should I write, who should I not give up on. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for your mercy. We sing of your praises because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. How many love him with all your heart? Come on, let's give praise to the Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.